Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Chrysell and Diane Duvernay are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and streaming at AM 1290, KZSB.com. We're repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara, at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets, and in Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Hi, Neil. Happy Monday. Oh, well, happy Monday to you. You were on vacation. How was your vacation? I was. It was fabulous. I got to go back to my hometown area and see my family, and it was great. Thanks for asking. I can... Um, I can detect the Massachusetts accent now. <laughs> Coming out in full flat, full yeah. force, right? Right. So um, do we have a guest today? We do. We are thrilled to welcome to the show Wayne Rosen. And he is a former Google vice president for engineering and a fellow of mathematics, mathematical and physical sciences at UC Davis and UC Santa Barbara. Wayne, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, and thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to this. So the first article we have today is entitled, As Bank Lending Titans, Small Businesses Turn to Customers to Raise Money. Um, and it begins by saying, as it gets harder for small businesses to land conventional loans, more of them are turning to a new source of funding their customers. Using a relatively little-known financing tool, businesses are able to sell bonds to hundreds of customers and community members with some investors uh, uh, investing as little as $10. And the businesses are capitalizing on a regulatory change that lets them solicit investments from non-accredited investors. And um, what's interesting about this is that unlike equity investing, uh, the bonds provide money to these small businesses without having to give up any equity. And this model is sort of like community banking was, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, the local banker would know the business because usually they were on the same block and felt comfortable in lending. Uh, and here we have people who go into a muffin store enjoy the muffins and decide, well, you know what, I'll put $50 or $100 into this. And in the article, they give examples of uh, with these small uh, lending, uh, they've raised anywhere from $50,000 to $200,000 through just putting their uh, customers' money to work. And it also provides for uh, goodwill, because uh, obviously the customers then are going to be more likely to continue as customers since they have uh, financial interest. It's almost like taking a page out of the the crowdsource funding, you know, for startups, which is which is really quite fascinating given where interest rates are right now. It, it it's kind of a, a a a good deal for the business, shall I say? Diane, you either have read the same article or you're very smart because one of the pages I didn't read it said this is very much like crowdfunding. So just good mark me down in the very smart category, right? Well, speaking of smart women, the next article is from Barron's, and it's talking about financial female financial advisors. And um, what we're seeing, apparently, is a uh, tremendous increase in the number of women 
women becoming uh, financial advisors. Um, and um, what is uh, driving this, what's driving this apparently is that it's not just about money management anymore. Financial planning, as you know, is about uh, tax planning, estate planning, uh, uh, dealing with people's uh, emotional problems. And so uh, with the so-called great uh, wealth transfer, which is expected to move $84 trillion between older Americans and their heirs, we're seeing a tremendous increase in the number of female uh, financial advisors who, uh, by the way, most people are saying, at least in this article is saying, are much more likely to be attentive to people's personal needs, listen, and um, certainly do uh, better with uh, many uh, recent uh, widows who are not used to dealing with the financial issues. You know, there's been a push in the financial services industry for a long time to have more women, have it be a profession more welcoming to women. And I, for one, think it's it's about time because I do think it's a great profession for women and I'd love to see more women in the industry. Uh, the next article is entitled Insurers, Insurers, Insurance Companies Show Limits of Digital Revolution. And uh, while most people don't realize this, uh, property and casualty insurance companies have been part of the, uh, uh, what I guess they're calling in this article, digital revolution, but it's also about AI, where there have been uh, a proliferation of companies that believe that they can price insurance policies and pick uh, customers with less risk. And uh, they list about five or six companies and they've all done disastrously. Um, and uh, what the article is saying that the, the expectation that they would be able to underwrite better based on AI just hasn't panned out. And um, not only that, but they also, uh, these companies believe that by providing uh, insurance policies through the internet, it would lower their costs. But it turns out that quote, paying Google is more expensive than paying an agent. And so they are paying more to get policies and the algorithms that they're using, algorithms that they're using uh, aren't working. Well, what's interesting is I always thought that insurance companies did use algorithms to measure risk. And it may not have been called AI back in the day, but there were definitely patterns that they were focused on to measure risk and therefore rate customers and and give them um you know premiums right because everyone pays a slightly different premium yeah. so it, it's interesting now that it's saying that the algorithms are providing information that doesn't necessarily correspond with the level of risk in which the individuals are taking so well, well, well in the past they they used rating systems that were pretty standard you know they would say are you were in a fire zone or you're not in a fire zone uh, are you over 25 or are you younger than 25 these companies came along and said they've got some razzle dazzle that um, will make the old system obsolete and as you said it probably is the same thing in a fancier package and the bottom line is these companies have not been able to do any better. And in fact, it's cost them more to do the, essentially the same result. Now, the last article we have is sort of similar in the sense that it involves insurance companies and it's entitled the pickleball craze won't decimate big insurers. And uh, believe it or not, insurance companies were afraid that the uh, 
popularity. The pickleball revolution was coming for him. <laughs> well, but older people are now playing pickleball because it doesn't really require much uh, experience and uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, practice. And so uh, the expectation was that older people would end up hurting themselves and that it would cost uh, the insurance companies uh, a significant amount of money. And it's true that uh, the, uh, as the article points out, that uh, orthopedic surgeons have done very well because of pickleball. Uh, the insurance companies have said it really hasn't had much of an impact on them. So um, it's okay, Diane, for you to continue. For me to continue to play my uh, my pickleball. I'm too old to play pickleball. I think that's it's just too it's just too dangerous. So I think I'll keep away from it. Uh, anyway, uh, you're we have a great guest today. So stick with us. You're listening to Money Talk on AM twelve ninety FM ninety six point nine, and we'll be right back. <laughs> American Riviera Bank is actually really good offering the loan to small businesses. The customer service that Renee gave, it was amazing. She actually gave us step by step. She helped me with every single step on the paperwork. She was great. We found a great bank and now we have a great coffee shop. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Santa Barbara Foresters Baseball is back on your radio again this season. And here's how you can get all the details about the 10-time National Baseball Congress World Series Champion broadcast schedule. Just click on the Foresters logo at am1290kzsb.com. That's Santa Barbara Foresters Baseball on the radio through August 6th at KZSB AM 1290 and FM 96.9 and streaming at am1290kzsb.com. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. If you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having with us today, Wayne Rosen, who's a former Google Vice President for Engineering, a fellow of mathematics and physical sciences at UC Davis and UCSB, 
uh, an astronomer, which we'll get to, and also a philanthropist. So Wayne, thanks so much for taking the time with us today to talk. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it was funny because when we were on the break, you were actually on your way for an astronomy field trip, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm, a friend of mine has invited a bunch of people and we're all going up to Mount Wilson, which is outside of Pasadena at about 6,000 feet. And uh, I'll be looking through a 100-inch telescope that was built in the, uh, I think it was built around 1920. Oh, wow. And what are you hoping to see through the telescope tonight? Well, I'm hoping to see stars because we've got the skylight from the Los Angeles basin, which will uh, create quite a background. But the forecast looks for clear skies. So that's a huge improvement over Santa Barbara recently, where I keep looking through fog. <laughs> yes, but that fog is keeping us cool here in Santa Barbara. So it's a, a love-hate, right? Right. The uh, <laughs> This is the telescope where Edwin Hubble uh, first discovered the data that led to the confirmation of the expansion of the universe. So it's, uh, it's sort of a, uh, I don't know, it's like going to... Uh, lords or something for an astronomer to be able to go and look through this telescope that's had such a impact on physics. Right. Wow. That's that's wonderful. Well, we're all glad that you're getting to go up to uh, to to test or basically to go, look through history. It's almost like astronomy and history where it meets. Right. Right. Exactly. So stepping back, you know, you've had several extraordinary careers, but first tell us where you are from and how you got yourself to Santa Barbara. Okay, well, grew up in Phoenix um, and uh, went to Berkeley in uh, 1960 and got off the bus and watched the arrest that started the free speech movement. So my time at Berkeley was very chaotic because Berkeley was very chaotic. But I was went there to study math, physics, and astronomy. But I got a job, a part-time job in a computer group. And I absolutely fell in love with computers and sort of my whole career flipped because of a part-time job from math and physics into computing. And so I ended up, uh, my first job really was uh, in Tucson, Arizona, working for Wesleyan University. And I built a computer for them, which was at the time one of the fastest computers in the world for what it did. And then I ended up moving from there ultimately to Data General Digital Equipment in Massachusetts. Um, and then uh, Apple where I was head of the Lisa development for many years, and we did the foundational work for Macintosh, and then some microsystems, and then ended up at Google when they were very, still small and developed and grew the engineering department. Hey, Wayne, couldn't you keep, you couldn't keep a job for long? You kept moving. Yeah, well, it, you know, it, it generally was five to eight years. <laughs> 
And then you were on the job change pace of today <laughs> versus back then. Well, it was going to technologies. Actually, there was a theme throughout it, which was networking, personal computers, and uh, getting what was the big computers of my my uh, teenage years into something that I would envision would be at home and I would be connected to the world. So I, I knew about the ARPANET and had a clear vision that I would always go where the action was to help make that happen. And, and, well, gosh, you certainly did. And yeah. so when you were at Apple, was that during the time that Steve Jobs was, was there, not during his break? Oh, no. Yes, Steve, Steve, I interviewed with Steve uh, and he was uh, sort of, I don't know, he was sort of on the board more and sort of had an office and was all over the place. And Lisa had started and then uh, I took over the engineering of that. John Couch was the director of the group. And then shortly after that, Steve started the Macintosh project and then our group and the Macintosh people worked together on lots of things. Um, so we worked pretty, very closely together for five years, really. Well, was it difficult? Was it difficult to leave Apple? Apple to go to Google? Well, I went through Sun Microsystems, so uh, uh, no, it, it wasn't difficult to leave because you know Apple was going one way. And Sun was trying to do open networked computers. And that was sort of the next problem on my list. Uh, so it was just a natural transition. You know, App Apple was going the personal route. And at that time, the idea of communications was a modem. And, you know, you've got mail. And... I really wanted to get on the internet side of things. And, and that's where the action was at, at that time. And so then what brought you, what made you leave Sun to go then to Google? Was it some project that they were working on or? Well, Sun, Sun I was there about eight years. Uh, my last project was uh, basically a project that started called Green and people now know it as Java. And uh, so I got that project started uh, in the sense that uh, James Gosling and Patrick Naughton came to me with this idea for, for a computer language. And that very much coincided with what I thought at Apple we needed to be part of sort of making the computers more network friendly. So, I just sort of said, yes, let's do it and talk to the president. And we went off and did this very radical thing. And it got to its infancy and, and, and was shown to work. And then it was sort of time for me to move on to the next thing, which was kind of take a break and do some astronomy. And then, and then in 1999, or no, excuse me, 2000, I got a phone call from a recruiter looking for leads for an engineering person for this company called Google. And 
I was sitting at my workbench and uh, long story short, I, I was on Alta Vista at the time and I, I used Alta Vista to Alta Vista Google and there we are. <laughs> I was the guy who answered the call. So do you think that in do you think that you brought innovation or that you're just always attracted to innovation because you know going from Apple and before its Macintosh days to then Sun Sun Systems to Google definitely has a pattern of you seeking out major societal change through innovation and is that something you've always been drawn to or were you just the guy in the right place at the right time well, I think I had a strategy. It was the technological change, the technological discontinuities that I looked for that would enable the goal. Uh, but uh, what I brought to, to Google, in my opinion, was my experience at how to manage through the phase of high growth. And how right. You were the experienced innovator, if you would. Right. And I was experienced in how innovation gets spoiled when a company gets big and it gets into the phase where it has to hire lots of people fast. And it, it imports all the bad habits from their competitors. So we really tried something very different at Google. And what would you say you're most proud of at your time at Google? Uh, the high quality of the hiring and the motivation of the people to, from the bottom up, come up with ideas and innovation. So it wasn't the top brass telling them what to do. We, we so, sort of planted a garden. I hope it's not too loud all of a sudden. Okay. So, so well, you know, you skipped over, you know, between um, uh, Apple and Sun Microsystems, you were said you were working on astronomy. What? And we'll get back to astronomy later because that's something that's your focus right now. But what were you doing for that short period of time in the astronomy area? Um, what I was, what I did is I was sort of building telescopes and doing contract work. But the idea was, how do you perfect building robotic telescopes that run unattended and are on the network? And you can put them halfway around the world and then I can be home and run them. Well, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. When you're farming a vineyard, you have 180 days to bring about a certain quality for the eventual wine. With a bank like American Riviera Bank, it's really comforting to have a partner that understands the agricultural landscape. Having people that communicate quickly with us, that are able to be flexible in how we're doing our business on a day-to-day -day basis has been a real strength in what we bring to our client base. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. St. Vincent's here in Santa Barbara operates a family strengthening program that offers transitional housing, parenting classes, and counseling for single mothers with young children. Here's Regina Ruiz. This is just an absolutely inspirational program where we bring mothers and their children to live right here with us on our 21-acre campus here in Santa Barbara, and they can stay with us up to two and a half years and receive 
wraparound services, and even send their children to our school, which is also right here on campus, the Early Childhood Education Center. And we really try to support them turning their lives around. It really, really helped our children get a better future, learn more about St. Vincent's, and share the love and compassion that you have in your heart with others in need in our community. For more information about St. Vincent's Family Strengthening Program, go to stvincents-sb.org or call 805-683-6381. Hey, watch where you park. Please, never drive your vehicle onto dry grass or brush. Hot exhaust pipes, catalytic converters, and mufflers can start fires that you won't even see until it's too late. Properly maintain your vehicle. Worn-out brake pads may not be able to stop you and can cause metal-on-metal sparks to fly. Keep a cell phone nearby and call 911 immediately in case of fire. Remember, one less spark is one less wildfire. The California Statewide Fire Prevention Program is grateful for your cooperation. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So Wayne, before the break, we were talking about your astronomy passion. Now, how did you get involved in your love for the stars? Well, my earliest memory with maybe one or two exceptions was being in the backyard in Phoenix with my grandfather and he was pointing out the Orion constellation and within about a year when I was five uh, I used to be able to name virtually all the navigation stars in the sky turns out my father had been a navigator on the Colorado which is a battleship um, in the Pacific. So he knew the navigation stars. So I don't know whether I learned them from him or my grandfather, but I had a fascination with the sky from childhood. And as I sort of proceeded in growing up and sort of getting ahead of school and doing a lot more reading on my own and teaching myself science and mathematics, earlier, um, it was all organized around trying to understand astronomy more. And by the time I was in high school, you know, I was building telescopes and grinding my own mirrors. And uh, it was too early to do computerized telescopes. Uh, but uh, I was I was beginning to think about it. And then when I had a high school job with computers, um, you know, I sort of put the two together as this is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Uh, so it goes back forever. And as I say, when I was going to go to college, my intention was major in math and physics and then get a PhD in astronomy. But that ended up changing. So spend my avocation and, and essentially my retirement project, which has now gone on for uh, let's see, how do we say that? 17 plus four, 21, 22 years now. And so 
how did you get involved with designing and placing these telescopes all over the world to further, you know, space exploration? Well, it 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 started two ways. Uh, I met somebody via a contact and talked to them, and he put me in touch with a professor at Swarthmore called John Gausted. And John was interested in the interstellar medium, essentially the gas between stars. And he wanted to do a survey of hydrogen in the Milky Way and essentially map the hydrogen gas. And it's, it's a very deep red. You can see it uh, with your eye, but it's quite red by any ordinary standards. Um, and often you'll see pictures of the Milky Way that are made at night with, you know, Canon cameras and other things like that. The Milky Way rising over some mountain or something. And there'll be sort of a reddish orange component to the galaxy that you see. That's mostly hydrogen alpha light. Uh, so quickly, I'll say they proposed doing a survey and I would uh, write the software and build the telescope and supply the camera for it. They applied to NSF, we got $50,000 and sort of in this interregnum between Sun and Google, I built that project, we deployed it. I did 15 trips to Chile to get it working. We got it working and it ran for like three and a half or four years and got the data and I was, in, at, at Google when it was finished up and occasionally it would break and I'd leave work, get on an airplane and the next day I'd be in Chile and uh, fixing it and then calling back in for staff meetings at Google and it was all quite crazy, but that's how things worked back then. And uh, it was much fun and that got me going with the idea of well, when I retire, I'm gonna go build a whole bunch of telescopes, put them around the world and build a scientific network to look at events and to have enough of them that we can look three or four days in a row all the time because you always have a telescope in the dark if you have enough of them around. And that's called Las Cumbres Observatory, which we founded, uh, we founded it in 1992, but let's put it this way. It got active as an organization in Goleta, California in 2005, essentially April 2nd of 2005 is when, when it got started because I resigned on April 1st. <laughs> yes, I, I can see how then it really started, started to take off. Now, do, do you collaborate with any governmental agencies on your findings through the telescopes? Uh, well, we have, we, we make our telescope available to um, scientists all over the world. National Science Foundation has given us a grant for the last five years or so to uh open up our telescope to access to US-based astronomers of all sorts. And uh, so we, we collaborate both with some of the funding agencies. We have NASA funding as well as um, some NSF funding. We have 
PhD astronomers on staff as permanent staff scientists, and we have postdoctoral fellows, and we have a relationship with UCSB uh, physics, astrophysics, and we host and work with graduate students. So we're, we're tight with UCSB, pretty tight with Caltech, um, and uh, generally uh, work with scientific agencies all over the world. And we should point out that you're not just looking at the elites. You're also uh, very much involved in working with high school science teachers and helping them be able to create you know, better curriculum. And you're also making your uh, systems available around the world to students. That's right. Uh, the, the, the Las Cumbres uh, project is you know, about 30 plus people and it's primarily an institution that is a scientific inst research institution with a small central staff and then lots of astronomers around the world do, use it to do science. And then we have a small, we had a small education operation within that, that started out of something we inherited when we bought two big telescopes early on. And that's called Global Sky Partners. And there's about 15 institutions around the world that offer astronomy education to their areas. So there's one in Australia, one in Portugal, there's one in the Canary Islands, there's a couple in Europe and England, the rest are in America. Um, the second thing I'm doing now is starting to deploy a bunch of telescopes around the world that will be much easier to use and can be used by basically sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, their grandparents, aunts and uncles uh, can be coaches. And so the idea is a self-paced course that a kid can discover and take rather than be in a class with a teacher. And uh, so it's sort of a pathway for kids who, who want to go off and learn something on their own. And we'll probably provide some guidance, but this has never been done in any meaningful way. So it's, it's an interesting experiment. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. 
Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Let's go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? <laughs> of course. I, I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true, I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah it's pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290. And so we're speaking, if you're just joining us, with Wayne Rosen, and we're talking about astronomy and space and his very um, extraordinary career. Um, I did want to ask you, though, Wayne, about solar because you know you are fascinated with space and and all that's beyond the earth and solar is the big thing that everybody's talking about of how to get solar on people's homes electric vehicles etc you have a different take so what are the marketing what are these solar companies missing in terms of their marketing well uh my experience has gone through uh, basically a number of phases. It's fairly early on, maybe 12 years ago, uh, we remodeled a house on the beach and you know, we, my wife and I decided to put solar panels on the roof. And at that time, the proposition was kind of, you pave your roof with solar panels, you cut down on your, uh, electricity uses by, you know, insulation and things like that, heat pumps. And then you produce more electricity than you use. So you put it in the grid. And isn't this wonderful? And you could even get to the point where you could produce more electricity than you use. And so you wouldn't have a power bill at the end of the year. That was sort of called net metering. But what's happened over time is the utilities, you know, they're not really interested in that because there's the Dow Jones utility index. People invest in utilities and make money. So I'm not sure the utilities were terribly thrilled at the time with, with somebody else uh, producing electricity. And so the net result is you'd get a very small payback, a couple pennies per kilowatt hour. Um, and the arguments were, oh, you can do all the math and the amortization and this and that, and it'll pay back in 12 years or 16 years or whatever it was. Then along comes 
Tesla batteries. And it was not obvious to me uh, from what I was being told when I inquired about it, that the following thing could happen. And this is very subtle, but very significant. Nowadays, most people are on a thing called net metering, which means, in, excuse me, uh, time of use, sorry, that you pay extra for your electricity from four in the afternoon until nine at night, or I may have my time slightly wrong, but essentially that's the peak time. And so what you can do is you have panels on your roof and you have some batteries, whether they're Tesla or somebody else's, is when it's sunny, you charge up your batteries in the daytime. You don't put the power into the grid until after you've charged up your batteries. Then at four o'clock to nine o'clock, you draw from your batteries, not from the grid. And so you're saving from paying five or six or seven cents or 15 cents a kilowatt hour, whatever it is, you're saving paying that because you're your own utility company now with, with the help of your battery. And the payoff on that is very visible. Um, I can look here on my phone and see, tell you right now what I'm saving today. And let's see, I just have to slide over here. There it is. And, uh, and I'm making money today and I don't, I don't know, here it comes, energy. Okay, In, uh, hold on, I'll get it. I'm a little challenged sometimes using uh, computers. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay, since January, we have not paid $1,374 in time of use fees on a house that we use about half the time. So that system's paying for itself at a reasonable rate. It'll be $3,000 probably this year. And so about a 10 year payoff. So, so now how is, can people who have solar and the Tesla batteries do exactly what you're doing and, and pretty much give only sell back to the grid during those peak hours? Well, the, 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 at least the Tesla system does that for you. And, and so it's just, it's ultimately a matter of having enough batteries if that's what you want to do. But my point about this is it's, it's, it's a little subtle and hard to communicate. And uh, the uh, companies, I think, need to do a better job of it. And it just seems a little confusing right now. For instance, if you want to, if you want to make an investment for the good of society and put a bunch of solar panels on your roof, then uh, it would be good for if people better understood that in terms of what are they doing. Whereas this use batteries thing does both. <laughs> you're 
adding energy to the system by putting some money on your roof and you're saving money and you're also decreasing the power draw at peak time. Which and is that good. right there, I think, is where the uh, the utilities might might see that as a real positive, because as we have brownouts or blackouts or whatever we call them, when the power stops working during those peak times, you would think it would be better if they were yeah. able to draw energy from all of those of us who have solar. That's right. And that's it's it's just a matter of ultimately getting the message right, because the utilities have a slightly different business model than the solar companies. And uh, how do we get it right? And how do we get it aligned with people's instincts to try to do the right thing in terms of their, their energy use? And it is very confusing. I've had several clients go through that process and what's the right decision? Yeah. So, so Wayne, um, you were mentioning before that you had 500 engineers working for you at one point at Google. How many engineers do you think for the same amount of creative work is going to be necessary now that we have AI? Is it going to be a significant replacement of computers replacing engineers or is that overblown? I think it's, in my opinion, it's highly overblown. We don't have AI artificial intelligence. What AI is right now is just a term for, for instance, taking everything everybody has written in every language that's digitized and on the net and looking for patterns and then saying, here's a pattern, there's a pattern. That pattern empowers Grammarly to, to make much better writing suggestions than I come up with. <laughs> but it's not intelligence. It's just matching human patterns and human behavior that have been recorded uh, uh, for grammar suggestions. And the same thing happens for uh, looking at computer programs and you, you pose a computer program question. And, and then... Uh, you look for patterns that other programmers have done and you apply it to the problem. So yeah, some trivial programming will be done that way. But all this allows is the creative people and the bosses of companies and customers to ask programmers to solve even harder problems. And so the programmers will just be busy guiding at a slightly higher level and they'll have a low level assistant who'll help deal with some of the writing of the code. So in other words, it will just increase productivity. Absolutely. Uh, you're listening to you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9 and we'll be right back with our final segment. What defines our community? Is it the people? The businesses? Is it the ranches, vineyards and farms? We think it's all of those, and we're committed to helping our communities thrive. Homeowners existing and new, businesses looking to grow or bring up the next generation, our regional agriculture managing their seasons, crops, and livestock. We're American Riviera Bank. 
and we invest in our communities. In you. Showers of Blessing is a nonprofit organization here in Santa Barbara that provides free hot showers, companionship, conversation, and access to services for people experiencing homelessness. Here's Nancy Shobe. Everyone is treated with respect and love and kindness. The beautiful thing is the transformation when our guests come out of a shower. I mean, the quotes from different guests of ours have been, I can now ride the bus and have people sit next to me. I can now go apply for a job and I feel like I'm in top form for the interview. I feel fantastic. One of my biggest concerns is that homelessness is going to grow. We have to help and really provide for our most vulnerable neighbors. It's imperative. To learn more about Showers of Blessing and to see how you can help out, go to showersofblessingsb.org. That's showersofblessingsb.org. It's important to buckle up your kids. I know. Sometimes car seats can be complicated. I know. And if your child's in the wrong seat and you get into a crash. I know. It could lead to a serious injury. I know. So you're 100% sure you have the right car seat for your child's age and size? I don't know. Don't think you know. Know you know. Car crashes are a leading killer of children 1 to 13. Make sure you have the right car seat. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to About Education. I'm Neil Kreisel, and we are brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. And our show is called Money Talk, by the way. I know. I I, <laughs> I knew it was, and I, I just forgot the name of it. So before the break, <laughs> we were speaking with Wayne Rosen about artificial intelligence and how it's affecting um, us, how we, how he thinks it will affect computer programmers. And Wayne, while you were at Google in 2000, was that something Google was working on? Is this artificial intelligence? Uh, no, we, but when, when I went to Google and started exploring what people were doing, what, was being experimented with then was what's called machine learning. How do you program a computer in such a way that you can build a, a database of knowledge and then you can then use that knowledge to, for example, answer questions or uh, convert from metric units to uh, English units, imperial units, there we go. And most important thing that was going on at the time was uh, translation, Google Translate, looking at books, for instance, taking old books that had been translated by expert people into French and German and English, but it's the same words, and then being able to compare the English to German, German to English mappings, and then be able to say, okay, how do you say this, something I just said in German or French? And it would do the translation by pattern matching human behavior. 
that's different than an artificial intelligence, which I think technically implies you have a computer that is sentient. Uh, and human beings are sentient. Some animals are thought to be sentient. They're aware of themselves. They're aware of their surroundings. Uh, and, but, but computer programs aren't artificially intelligent yet. So they're pattern matching. They're very sophisticated pattern matching and they make suggestions. But like when Grammarly uh, tells me that I should use a semicolon instead of a comma, that's, that's a form of pattern matching. But when Grammarly completely changes the words and suggests something different on how I want to say it, that's a, that's a miracle, that's magic. But it really is just pattern matching. What I said is being pattern matched against some of the best authors in the world. And, you know, they could be authors of memos and companies. They don't have to be Nobel Prize winning authors. Um, and that's, what, that's what's going on now. And it's, it's fantastic. But what it's going to do is help people. So you're viewing well, it as so, a Wayne, we have to have you back. We've only touched on a very small part of, of all that you do. Uh, it's incredibly impressive. So thank you so much for being our guest. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>